Hi, everyone. This is John Mandrola, and uh, this is another session of the Sensible Medicine Podcast. Today, we're really pleased to have uh, Tracy Beth Hogue um, and Vinay Prasad, of course. What would what would a podcast be without Vinay? So I think what we'll do is we'll just go through uh, some uh, introductions. And um, Tracy, why don't you go ahead and tell us about yourself? All right. Thanks, John. Oh, I, well, I'm so happy to be here. Um, I'm a big fan of the two episodes of the show you guys have had so far, and uh, I'm just uh, excited to, to be part of this and uh, also the whole Sensible Medicine Project. But um, so I, um, I currently live in California. I'm, yeah, I'm originally from Wisconsin. Uh, I, that's where I went to undergrad, studied French and English, um, and ended up uh, spent doing some of my undergrad and living in France and did um, medical school in the U.S. in Wisconsin and um, ended up eventually moving to Denmark, uh, where I uh, did a Ph.D. in epidemiology and public health. I worked as a physician there, lived there for seven years, um, became a citizen, moved back um, in 2015, did PM&R residency at UC Davis, um, and actually was just starting in private practice um, right when the pandemic started. And, um, and now I'm also, so I'm, I'm in private practice. Um, I work part-time at UCSF, actually with Vinay, um, in epidemiology and public health. And I uh, have a couple other jobs, one in the Bay Area, actually, a small company um, working on health policy and um, yeah, so I've been uh, I've been busy, you know, doing a combination of research and clinical medicine. So getting to use like both the MD and PhD, which is awesome, <laughs> and happy to be in California. Absolutely love it here. Great, yeah. And I, you know, and and we have to do you, John, because actually, you know, this whole time we never heard your background. You know, you just assume the audience knows. So I'm I'll go quick. I'm Vinay Prasad. I'm uh, originally from Indiana, and I did uh, most of my training out in the Midwest, medical school in Chicago, residency at Northwestern, my fellowship at NIH, and then I was on the faculty in Oregon for about five years. I came out here about three years ago to be on the faculty at UCSF. I'm a hemonc doctor, and I do epidemiology, and I work in the Department of Epidemiology. And Tracy, we're lucky. We're lucky she gives us a few hours a week, but yeah, we work together on some projects, and hopefully you'll see them soon. Great. Well, I mean, just... Yeah, I uh, um, I grew up in Hartford, Connecticut, just north of Hartford. And uh, when everybody was staying uh, in Connecticut to do their training, I said, I want to go to the Midwest. Um, I love the movie Hoosiers and uh, interviewed in all these Midwestern places and played basketball on Friday night when I was interviewing in Indiana and just, you know, wanted to be a cardiologist. So I stayed in Indiana, trained in Indiana, met my wife, Stacy. And uh, a job opened up here in Louisville, and I've been in private practice EP um, uh, here for, what, 27 years, and didn't even start doing anything writing-wise for um, uh, for 10 years, 14 years. And then I started a sort of blogging during the mommy blog era, and one thing led to another, and, and now I've, I do some writing and podcasting and all that stuff. And yeah, that's that's how it all started. I wanted to... Uh, I'm so excited to talk to Tracy about this whole difference between the U S and Denmark. And it really, it really came due in the pandemic. So uh, I'll tell a little story. 
my Denmark story, and I'm I'm so hooked on Denmark. I went there in March of uh, 2022, right as the Omicron thing was going on, and Denmark had just decided that they were done with uh, restrictions. And so you, you you go through the U.S. airports, you go through Amsterdam, you land in Copenhagen, and it was like a time machine. It was like a time machine. There were masks, masks, masks. And all of a sudden, you, you walk off the, uh, uh, th- the planeway to the, to the airport in Copenhagen, and it looked like 2019. And so my friend uh, picked me up, and we did a little bike tour of Copenhagen. And I said, what's going on here? Do you guys not have COVID? And he says, oh, we've got we've got COVID, but the um, authorities had decided that it was under control and that uh, we were done living like that. And he said that um, in, in Denmark, this is what really stuck to me. He said, in Denmark, we trust our medical authorities and our government. And I said, wait a second, is that right? And so then, you know, I started learning more and I was there for a few days and I was like, I, I asked other people and indeed they confirmed that the Danish people trust their medical leaders and, and their government. And this is such a foreign concept to an American. And so I just wanted to, I mean, do you think this was just uh, uh, not a random sample, Tracy? Or do you think that this is sort of um, kind of a, a good sample? No, I, I do think it, I, th- I think it's a good sample. And I also think that, you know, the Danish public health authorities have like given the people of Denmark like a reason to trust them. Um, And I think that as opposed to the American CDC, they they do a much better job of sort of like walking through the evidence and why they're making the decisions that they're making and what they're basing it on. you know, I mean, I think I'm probably my favorite example was Søren Brostrøm, who was the head of the what's called the Sundhedsstyrelsen, um, uh, which is the main, you know, public health body there. It's like the equivalent of the CDC that, there when he kind of came out and said, you know, looking back, we made a mistake about vaccinating uh, children. We thought that if we did it, it would control the the spread of COVID, but we were wrong, you know, and so I, I think that they do a good job of sort of, you know, admitting uh, what they what what they don't know, admitting when they made a mistake, um, and and being transparent with people, um, and 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 I also think there's a huge difference there where it doesn't, you know, these these issues don't become politicized like they did in the United States, and I mean that has to do with you know a country having multiple political parties, you know, not just being divided between Democrat and and Republican. Um, and uh, I, I think it also has to do with the fact that they really um, encourage open debate in the media there. And so when you read the newspapers, it's like they, they often feature articles by scientists who disagree. Um, and I think we don't really have a lot of that in the US. And so I have such an advantage that whenever I'm in doubt about a topic, I can go to read the Danish news and I can read the debate and I can read their take on the evidence because I know that their take is not going to be politicized. Um, and so I don't know. I think from the beginning, like, I guess that's been my my little secret of like, how do I figure out what's like how to separate truth from fiction beyond like just looking at the studies? It's like it kind of helps me see through sort of what in the U.S. has been, uh, you know, really pushed just based on political ideology. It's quite it's quite shocking. The other thing that my colleague said was that 
he said on many of the big issues, the Danish people agree. And I thought, you know, that's, that's another thing. Now, maybe uh, I think some of the naysayers in the U.S. would say, well, look, Denmark's the size of Minnesota. It's a pretty uniform population. So maybe, maybe they have that advantage. And I, I was going to say that that is that is one of the issues with Denmark is it's very, very homogeneous and they do agree on on many things. And, you know, actually having been someone who came from outside of the uh, the country and the society to go live there, I sort of faced the difficulty of of being a physician there. And I, I will actually say because I didn't have a classic American accent for whatever reason. Like I, I was really, there was a lot of distrust towards me. And so I think in general, in Denmark, there's this sort of sense of like Danes, we have this way of doing things. We have our culture and there's like, there is a distrust of sort of the, you know, what's, what's outside of it. And so, I mean, I think maybe a little bit to Denmark's detriment, they, they're, they're not very, they're not as diverse as say like California is. I mean, that's, that is actually a great thing about California. Um, but but yeah, I mean, that's part of it is it's like people sort of know that culturally they they agree on things um, without asking each other. But just one thing to add to this point. I mean, I think it's it's well taken that these are smaller nations and Denmark is much smaller, you know, a, a, akin to Minnesota. But if you look across all of Western Europe and Northern Europe, Sweden, Norway, Finland, uh, Switzerland, Denmark, even to a lesser degree, France, um, uh, Germany to a lesser degree. Uh, you know, I think that the entire European response was more of moderation um, than the United States. And the United States, we're the most extreme. You know, we have two really fundamentalist groups. Um, either it, you know, it doesn't exist and there's nothing to do about it, or, you know, we should still be to this day living in our bunkers. I mean, those are our two yeah. extreme polars. Um, the UK to a lesser extent. And so I guess I'm curious, you know, Yes, they're a small nation, but I don't know if that fully explains, you know, why they so often find middle ground, um, because all the other nations sort of similarly did so in, 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 in Western and Northern Europe. Yeah, I'm. I mean, in terms of, I, I think the best example of that is, is the school closures, because I think throughout Europe, like they, they really agree, like, and I think it has to do with their history of sort of a social safety net and, and, and the, the, the idea that really children need to be a safe place while their parents at work and, you know, people need to be at work to make money. And so there was that whole, like that all of Europe agreed, agreed on that. So that I think that, you know, the United States was really quite an outlier in our way of thinking about that. And it's really interesting how it ended up that way, but I do think it has to do with sort of the economic and social hierarchy in the U.S. of people who are sort of making the rules or giving ideas about what we should be doing, not having to deal with the negative impacts of what they're suggesting. Um, and I think that was definitely the case with school closures. Um, and I, I think that Europeans are sort of the, the, the public health officials and the um, advisors there are a little bit less out of touch. And there's more of a sense of like, we're all in this. We really are all in this together. That wasn't, that wasn't here is like our sense of we're all in this together is everyone just needs to lock themselves away, except for the people that can't. Del del <laughs> deliver your food. Except, I mean, right. we all lock ourselves, except for the Uber Eats has to come and my Amazon prime can't be late, but, but other than that, we'll lock down. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and of course, my nanny can't be late or my you know, tutor for the children can't be late, you know, these sorts of things right. that rich yeah. people had, but, you know, average people didn't.
But John, where are you taking this? Tell us what one, one of the things that strikes me is that, you know, I don't travel, I don't travel a ton, but the more I do travel to these other places, I wonder why one of the things that I'm kind of frustrated about American, you know, culture or whatever is that we we don't seem to we don't seem to incorporate or think about how other countries handle that. And when I when I was just running around Copenhagen and Roskilde and right during the Omicron uh, and I'm wave and I'm asking these questions and I'm just I want to go back home and I don't want to sound like the college kid who knows everything because I just finished college. But on the other hand, <laughs> you, you, you see these other things and you just wonder why you wonder why authorities and people don't think about um, other ways to uh, approach problems. Well, and I think, you know, a lot of people in the U.S. were quite aware of what was going on in Europe and Scandinavia, but maybe they just didn't really want to make a fuss about it. And a lot of people just sort of go along with what they're told to do and what they should. And I think that's that's also something something cultural here. And I think a lot of people sort of felt it was without uh, outside of their power to do anything you know, about it. I think we can, we're going to get to the masks, but that might be going on with like, why, why all over healthcare, are we still wearing masks everywhere? And why are we, you know, making, yeah, I mean, <laughs> but I mean that's I, one example, but there's so many like that. Like, why can't people be with their loved ones, you, um, in, you know, in the hospital now? I mean, it didn't make sense two years ago. It's like, makes even less sense now. Um, and along those lines, I mean, you know, so often, Tracy or me or Marty or, you know, somebody on, on social media says, why can't our vaccine policy be like X? And then, you know, somebody fires back, oh, that's anti-vax. And it's like, actually, that is the, that's the stated policy of Sweden, or, you know, that's the policy of Denmark. And to John's point, you know, many people are just unaware that these are real substantive differences in policy around vaccines, schools, um, and we'll talk a little bit about masking children, certainly um, masking to a lesser degree, but there are still substantial variation by country. You know, part of it is American exceptionalism means you don't need to look outside of America to know what to do. And I think that's always been a bias of America. Um, but maybe Tracy and myself, to some degree, one of the reasons why we might have thought differently about the pandemic from the get go, you know, she obviously has ties to Denmark. And I run a research team where, you know, 25% of my team is in Europe. Um, and so I'm constantly sort of influenced by what somebody from Switzerland thinks or what somebody from, you know, Portugal thinks because they're on my team and I see them twice meet, you know, twice weekly Zoom meetings. So I think that does it's important to have to know what other countries are doing and what you know happens there. OK, yeah. speaking of differences, I want to talk about two other things. Differences between Denmark and the U.S. And the other thing that I was struck by when I was there is the difference in healthcare system. So. I, I spent time in the in the hospitals and the EP labs um, there, and um, I learned that I learned that in Denmark there's a public health. Get this, this is a, this was so amazing to me. And again, I I I don't want to sound like the naive kid from college, but I'm sitting there in the EP lab and I'm talking to the Danish docs about how the healthcare system is, and it's a public health system where everybody has everybody has healthcare. And you could say, oh, well, look what's happened to NHS. And, you know, there's all this Canadian, you know, you have to get in line to wait. And, and so, but the Danish people are even smarter than that, right? So they have this system where there's also a private system, which is very expensive. And if, uh, uh, if a patient 
is recommended for a procedure and they don't get it within 30 days or some amount, they can then go to the private system and the public system that they're in has to pay for the very expensive private system. So when I was there, they were having some cancellations uh, because of whatever, and they were struggling to get people on the schedule so that they didn't have any inefficiency in the system. So I thought to myself, this is like the best case scenario. They have a pub- they have a public health system where everybody gets health care, and and it's free, but then there's also an incentive to get people taken care of quickly, and I found this just amazing. Yeah, I mean, no, that's true. I mean, there's like there's the two types of healthcare that you can get, and there's this like is insurance one and insurance two, and the second one is like the more expensive one where you can get access to more rapid care for like like elective procedures and things like that. No, less than one percent of the population has that, and then, and I think that actually speaks to what you're saying that that most people are actually quite satisfied with the health, the the basic the basic healthcare there, and it's. I didn't, you know, working there, I, there's not, I didn't experience patients like waiting uh, a long, uh, uh, like an inappropriate amount of time for procedures or anything like that. Now I was in ophthalmology, so it's, it's a little bit different. Um, but like, it was pretty rare that we would, we would have a patient wait for cataract surgery for more than like a few months. So, um, you know, and, and like all of the urgent procedures, like retinal detachment, like you do right away. Like there's, there weren't, there weren't issues with like delayed care there. Not, not that I saw. Um, so that's a clever thing that, you know, I didn't know about, but it seems like they've solved one of the classic problems of single payer or, or single healthcare facilities, which is the lengthy delay and wait list that plague NHS and plague to some degree Canada. Um, and they've solved that in a nice way, but, um, you know, I mean, all of Western Europe, I think has different sort of solutions to tackle it. I didn't know about Denmark. So I think it's pretty clever. Um, but I guess the point I want to make on this topic is that I actually agree that, you know, I think healthcare is a fundamental obligation of the state in the same way education is and roads are and those sorts of things. You can call it a human right or, you know, however you choose to call it. I think we have a societal sort of duty to each other for healthcare. But the part that gets me is I want it to be healthcare that actually works. I don't think you can tax people to pay for healthcare that doesn't actually help us and just enriches corporations, but that's a non-trivial percentage of what we're doing, you know? And so the thing I most admire about European nations is that they're more conscientious about the cost effectiveness of what they do, but even they, I think are not perfect. They could be running many more studies than they do. And they take a lot of things that from America and they just take for granted that they work. And I don't think that's true. Um, But that's a really interesting observation, John. I never knew they did that. So, so, Vinay, uh, this podcast is uh, is quite left leaning, then, right? Because uh, everybody in this everybody in this podcast believes we ought to have healthcare for all. I just want to make that point. <laughs> you know, I think that that's one of the the challenges. I mean, to Tracy's point about politicization, um, you know, to some degree, we don't all neatly fall in boxes. And my discontent with the progressive left COVID nineteen position comes from the point of view of somebody who is on the progressive left for most positions from regulatory science to taxation policy um, to issues like abortion. I'm on the side of the progressive left to issues like healthcare for all. Um, But they got COVID wrong. And, you know, if you really think about the principles of progressivism, one of the core principles is the children you should not abandon are the poor vulnerable children. And yet everything we did, school closure, vaccine mandates, masking children, puts all of the burden on those poor vulnerable children. So I think we've abdicated our principle 
because we, you know, succumb to sort of partisan reactive politics and not using our brains. But your point's well taken. It's a very, you know, we are kind of, yeah, this is a left of center discussion. Well, the, 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 the struggle, I guess the struggle that I have is, um, you know, Andrew Foy put me on to the Constitution of Liberty. And so I've read Hayek and I've read a bunch of Hayek. And so I struggle between this true free market and the, and, and actually this universal healthcare system. But I think at the core of it, the difference is in the universal healthcare system is somebody has to make a choice about what can be done. And I think this is the thing that really is a, a, a difficult barrier for America because we just don't like the idea of some authority making choices, like, for instance, the, the nice uh, uh, system in, in, in Britain but, or, or, the, or the Canadian system. I, I mean, I think I, I mean, don't know that there'll ever be a solution. I guess your point's well taken. And my, but my best solution for that is to say the public health care we offer everybody should pay for a floor of services that we really know work and deliver value. And then Tracy and John and I, we're free to get whatever private insurance we want in the private market if we want to get, you know, AFib ablation four times in our lives. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if we want to chase things that may have marginal benefits, um, you know, or chemotherapy at the end of life, you know, so there's a private system for that. And then ultimately, you know, nothing stops a person from using their own money to um, pay for whatever they want, from going to the movies, to going to Barbados, to healthcare. I mean, nothing stops you from using your own money that way. I think, you know, and this is the part that I probably agree with Foy and you on, which is that to me, it's an unspeakable thing to tax middle-class people to pay for healthcare that doesn't work. I mean, I think that's just non-starter, um, but that's what we're doing in the U.S. I mean, we are doing that. And even some degree, they're doing that in Europe. They're just maybe doing it less. And, and I mean, you know, if, if it's left wing, I guess, you know, to say that we want to have universal health care. But then, like, is it like, you know, it's also left wing here to say I want to, like, have a covid testing program in my school. And so then, you know, do I have to agree with that? Like, I I guess, you know, I, I have to say. Uh, since living in like a multi-party country and I, I've really struggled with the idea of identifying personally identifying with like, like a political party. Like, I, I think that the issues, the issues are just too complex. I mean, and I, I, I it gets to what Vinay is saying that like, you can say that you want to cover everyone, you know, in terms of healthcare and their basic needs, but then you also have to say like, you can't endlessly cover everything. And I feel like in the U S like we've gotten into that problem now where always doing more is because is like the liberal, the liberal side in terms in, in healthcare and health policy. And like, how, how is like always spending more is not going to end up, you know, getting you where you want to go. And so that that's just the issue with saying that there are only two sides. But, you know, that's that. a great example, Tracy. I mean, absolutely well taken. The great example you're giving is somebody on the progressive left in America, in addition to saying universal health care, is also going to say, we need universal free testing every day at schools. Yes. And then the, the difference, I think, between universal thiazide prescription and universal testing every day in schools is universal thiazides for people with high blood pressure has rock solid evidence that we improve outcomes at a very favorable price. So, you know, society could invest in that and it will be good for everybody, the person and society. But testing every day in schools has, as you know, god awful evidence to support it as a strategy. And in fact, if they ever tested it properly, what you, I would bet all the money I have that you'll find is you'll halt school tremendously. You'll disrupt education massively. And at one and a half years later, you'll have the exact same zero prevalence as if you didn't do it. Um, and so it's a useless strategy particularly useless when you use antigen testing that's negative when you are 
able to spread the virus, you know, because it has the false negative early on. So, I mean, to your point, Tracy, I think to me, politics and, and principles of politics is what is the outcome you care about? The well-being of the population. And are you willing to marshal taxation to do it? That's what progressivism means. But it's an empirical question of whether or not things work or not. That should be left to technocrats who can sort of think about that. But the problem is many people put on their progressive hat and they can't use their evidence-based medicine hat. It just bro- their brain is broken for that. <laughs> it's just broken. Okay. Right. One more thing before we get to the Cochrane. I want to, uh, another striking thing that I learned, Tracy, was that when I was there in, in a, a research program, I learned that to become a cardiologist in Denmark, you had to, you had to earn a PhD before you could go into practice. So you went to Denmark and got a PhD. And what I noticed from uh, going, you know, listening to the presentations there, a lot of young people giving their uh, presentations is number one, there's a tremendous amount of research coming, at least in the cardiology space from, from Denmark. And number two, I was like, it seems like people get out of people get out of training quite late in their life, age 40 or so. But the, the, the other thing is that there was a tremendous amount of um, uh, social support for families and, and people got home on time and there was enough child support. And it was a, such a striking difference between what like my daughter struggles with her childcare here in the U.S. And I, I just wondered if, if you, you could comment on that. I mean, yeah, so uh, like the I can just comment on what the the medical education uh is like there. I mean, just to give people an idea, um like so you you go to the equivalent of like of high school, which includes one year of college and then at the end of that you decide you want to apply to go to medical school and it's really difficult to get in just like it is in the US. Um and and then you go to medical school which lasts six years. So it's a little bit longer than here but it includes, you know, undergrad training but it's free. So I think that's important for people to take note of. And then um and then you can you apply to like do your basic like internship uh one year. Um and then you want you can do intro stilling. Uh, it's called it's intro position. And, and basically that's the one thing I'm going to say is when I moved back to the U S I had forgotten all my English, but okay. So I'm going to, it's come back now, but like, so, so when, when you, you, you do the intro and you basically try out different specialties, like there's no rush. That's just the thing about, about training in, in Denmark was that people spend many, many years to figure out what it is exactly they want to do. And there's not that same sort of like, I need to get done so I can start making money. Um, because, you know, you, the medical school is free. Um, you're not, you don't have this huge debt and you're making money and you're doing fine. So you can just kind of explore the different specialties. Um, but what you're saying about cardiology and, and needing a PhD. So it's, there are different specialties just like here that are more competitive to get into. I actually didn't know cardiology was one of those. Apparently it is. Um, but ophthalmology was, was similar. Uh, you don't absolutely need to have a PhD, but um, it kind of depends on uh, your qualifications. Um, but most people, at least in ophthalmology, sounds like cardiology, some other specialties will need to get one, to get, especially if you want a position like in a desired location, like in Copenhagen. Um, and then that training takes like six years. Um, and, and, you know, the, the work week there is about 37 hours a week. I mean, I would say in medical training, a lot of people will work a little bit more. It's not a lot more, but you also have a lot more paid holidays, paid time off. Um, 
paid maternity leave, um, supplemental supplemented childcare, like it, it even late hours into the to the night. So like when we were on call, um, you know, we could we could get childcare like actually later hours that you know, it, it, and it's it's very very family friendly, um, and so. <laughs> You get very easily spoiled, as you can hear, but, uh, yeah, but I mean, that's like the basic structure of it. But you don't make a ton. I mean, like, it's not like you make a huge amount of money. And I should point out, too, that when I did my Ph.D., like I was paid, but I had to apply like I had to get a grant for my own salary. And that, I mean, that's like a different, um, you know, discussion, but everything is paid. And it's like people are even in their medical training, you're living very comfortably, you know, comfortably enough. So you're not like rushing to be done so that you can actually finally start making money. <laughs> one of the, one of the things I noticed on that point was that about, it was like 70, 30 uh, female to male. Um, and so one wonders whether mm. if, if we wanted more, uh, you know, if we wanted more women in cardiology, maybe, uh, maybe providing the kind of support that they do in Denmark would be one way to get that. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think there's something to that. I mean, I I I will say that in in Denmark, I it's over 90% of moms work full time. So I think that really tells you everything that you need to know because uh that was like a huge actually culture shock for me when we moved back having never been a mom in the US when we moved to California and like it was like all of the moms of my kids' friends were stay-at-home moms and I it was so strange to me to think like so you get all of this education and now you don't get to use it but uh, but you're like women are put into this position where like you have no other choice in so many circumstances like you can't you have to prioritize your kids like like they're doing the right thing and yet it's like our society you know the way the U.S. is set up it's like that's their only choice. So I'm I'm totally with you both on the thesis that if you provide more support for people, particularly parents, et cetera, you'll be able to have a stronger labor force and better participation of women in the labor force, et cetera. And, you know, we could learn some things from Northern Europe. Uh, the only thing that I'll quibble with you, John, about is that if we made all our trainees do a PhD, they still wouldn't know anything about interpreting studies. <laughs> <laughs> well, that might be true in Denmark, too. I don't know. <laughs> okay, well, anyway. Let's get to the all meat. Right, let's right. get to the meat. The reason I came. All right. All right. Let's talk about let's let's talk about the Cochrane review on non-pharmaceutical measures to to uh, stop the spread of of respiratory viruses. And so, Vinay, why don't you why don't you give the rundown? And um, I think I think we want to really hit. I want to. I really want to hit the idea of. Um, this whole absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And I want to hit the idea of looking at evidence in regards to what our prior beliefs are. So children, children are Bayesian learners and they, they, they have prior beliefs and then they, they see new evidence and they update their prior beliefs. And I think this is really relevant to interpreting this, this Cochrane review. And I also thirdly want, I really want to point out what what actually is a Cochrane review and what is a meta-analysis and, and what's the difference between a Cochrane meta-analysis and, you know, uh, uh, some of these other kinds of off-the-cuff meta-analysis that you see every day. All right. So it's a lot. To, I'll, I'll try to summarize briefly these points. 
So what makes Cochrane unique? Cochrane is a well-established and historical collaboration of people who are very interested in evidence-based medicine, who seek to provide impartial, objective assessments of the literature. Cochrane does some things that other people don't, like exquisite pre-registration, lots of internal checks, uh, including peer review before they publish their reports. And I think historically has had a high level of credibility that a Cochrane report is very good. Now, I should put a little asterisk, you know, a few years ago, 10 years ago, there's a big brouhaha between the Cochrane CEO, Mark Wilson, and Peter Gocha about levels of evidence. And there's there's some debate in the organization. And then there's another asterisk around, you know, there's a particular report about statins that everyone's up in arms about. But both those caveats aside, Cochrane does good work. This report is done by Tom Jefferson. He's based in Rome. He's a very seasoned evidence-based medicine reviewer. He's recently interviewed, I think, on a Substack post that I was reading this morning, where he says, I don't tweet. You know, I don't, I don't talk on social media. I'm just a scientist. And that's how he views himself. He's famous for the Tamiflu reanalysis when Roche had to turn over primary clinical study reports from the Tamiflu randomized control trials. Tom Jefferson went through each report with his team. Like we're talking about hundreds of thousands of pages by hand. They recoded all the adverse events and all the outcomes. And that led to that very famous BMJ paper on Tamiflu. So he's a good reviewer and he's done really rock solid work. This is the second, uh, not the second, in the last four years, this is the second update of the Cochrane Review came out this year. They had a report come out in 2020 and it's like physical interventions to slow the spread of respiratory viruses. So it's anything from hand washing to um, wearing eyeglasses was in there at Lafrette Times papers in there to masking, which is the hot button topic. And the outcome is anything for influenza or, you know, COVID-19 now um, wasn't there in 2020 because there were no studies back then. And he's looking primarily at randomized control trials. And the, t- the too long didn't read of the report is that if you look at randomized control trials of community mask use, um, he concludes that the point estimate is basically no. Uh, there's no evidence that it will actually slow the spread of respiratory viruses, both in individual and cluster randomized trials. He also looks at N95 versus surgical masks among healthcare workers, and he also finds that that's a null signal as well. And so this, when you look at the highest level of evidence, the randomized trials, not the um, Maricopa County versus Pima County observational study, even though one county voted for Biden and one voted for Trump and one county has higher vaccination rates, you know, that kind of confounded stuff, you get, you know, certain effect size. You look at randomized data, the effect size vanishes. Now, the last thing I'll just say, many people... We have to acknowledge we live in a world where many people are fervently pro-mask and uh, those people are arguing something that is, you know, it's technically true that just because this report shows that these randomized trials failed to establish a benefit of masking, it doesn't mean that masking doesn't work under any and all circumstances. Maybe the right mask, the right recommendation, the right person, it would have worked. And they call this the absence of evidence. It's not evidence of absence. In other words, just because you don't have evidence that it works doesn't mean it doesn't work. It's not evidence that doesn't work. And it's technically true, but to your point about Bayesian reasoning, that's why I think it's practically false and practically incorrect. And the reason is, the way I always view it is, in the last 100 years, there have been probably 10 million or 100 million different ideas that very smart people like John Mandrola or you know, very smart people have offered that will improve upon our condition from, you know, flecainide post-MI to routine use of Swan-Gans catheter to if you have dust mite allergy, put your bed sheets in impermeable bread covers. I mean, there's thousands of hypotheses that make perfect sense of all the things people have suggested. You know, the vast majority don't work. I mean, in drug development for every 100 drugs in Pfizer's pipeline, the lucky of four will come to the U.S. market. 
And so the, the odds that something, that something you're not doing um, actually offers a benefit are really lottery-like odds. And so practically, I think what this means is the absence of evidence is evidence of absence because the pretest probability most things work is really, really low. So Tracy, you've done some studies on masks. And I mean, what do you say to people who argue, well, if you just wore the mask all the time, or if you wore it appropriately, it would work under these circumstances? Yeah, I mean, I I don't think that, you know, we have we have good evidence uh, that that's even the case. I mean, I, I, I agree with Vinay that it's like, it's, it, it's very, very difficult scientifically to ever say that if you do something exactly perfectly, that it's not, especially with, with masks, that it's not, that it's for sure not going to work. But I, you know, I think that the issue comes first, like with recommending that people do something. And then the next level is, you know, with mandating that people do something. And so I think that when, you know, we, we've now had all these randomized studies in multiple different situations with, all the, you know, with N95s, with cloth masks, with surgical masks, and we're not finding any, we're not de- detecting any evidence of benefit in terms of preventing the spread of respiratory viruses from them. And so, you know, I think with the evidence that we have, it's like, we definitely shouldn't be mandating that people do it. Um, and, and like even recommending it comes with problems because then people feel like the obligation to do it, or they feel like they need to tell other people to do it. Um, and so, and I guess you could say it's just, it's just masks, but, you know, the, especially, you know, we've, we, we we don't want to exaggerate the issues, but it's like it's when you weren't when you're imposing it on children. I mean, and it can impair their learning and their communication with each other. I mean, yeah, that that's that's the issue. And so you know, I I think that the, with the studies that that I've been doing, I mean, the most recent one is I think a really good example of what actually uh, of medical evidence and the type of evidence that's been used to promote the masking because. We, we, uh, Amber Chandra and I like reanalyzed one of the, um, the CDC studies that they published, the Budson et al. et al. study that was used as rationale to recommend and mandate even masking in schools. And they use such a short study period time and such a small group of people that they end up finding a significant benefit and it might actually just have to be with controlling the using adjusting their numbers with the social vulnerability index that they got the numbers that they did but basically when we reanalyze their data with a larger sample size in a longer time period the, the effects the effect disappeared the MMWR and the CDC refused to publish our reanalysis and then we eventually got it published in the journal of infection but you can see the problem here with that you know not everything is getting published if it's negative because people are afraid of the implications of publishing something you know that they think might have a societal detriment and so journals are erring on the side of not publishing you know like uh studies that find negative um impacts of masking and so actually everyone should read that uh, Marianne Damasi interview with Tom Jefferson because he talks about how their publication was delayed for seven months during like a very critical time. Um, it was like from April to, to November of 2020 that the publication of their original Cochrane review um, was, was delayed. 
Um, and, and so, you know, I, I think that we have seen more of that than we know and not during the pandemic and not just with masks. I mean, I guess we were involved in a study together, John, where we, we, we faced similar issues. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine that there would ever be, I mean, it's just shocking to me that there would be a delay and pressure in publishing certain kinds of data. I've never heard of that. Never, never. And then then one more point to Tracy's uh, point, which is that, you know, what Tracy also found is that based on the time interval you look at, you can either get a favorable benefit if you cherry pick the right time slice, or if you look more broadly, it's negative. This kind of analytical flexibility is everywhere in observational research. And so for a question where people are very invested, like, does it make sense to mask Massachusetts school children? And you run a analysis that's even published in a prestigious journal like New England Journal, there can be many analytical choices you made along the way that yields the result. And so I always like to say that it's tough to do an observational study objectively when you already have written a change.org petition. <laughs> as, yeah, yeah. Is, as in this case, you already have the change.org. And now yes. No, but I mean, that's, a, that's such a huge point, this whole analytic flexibility. I mean, you know, we, maybe we need to get Brian Nosek on and, and, yeah. and talk about how, how you look at data can, can change things. But I want to I wanna ask you one thing, because it, uh, one of our projects at Sensible Medicine is to explain critical appraisal. And, and one of the things I want to ask you, either, either Tracy or Vinay, is, okay, so when, when Tom Jefferson puts these trials together, he finds a null, he finds a null uh, point estimate. But on the left and the right of that are these 95% conference intervals, and you know, they allow for benefit and they allow for, 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 for harm. And, or, and how, do you, how do you parse this? A point estimate is, point estimate is null, but you know, what if there's wide conference intervals and, and does that give credence to folks who might say that the intervention you're studying, it, it's just, we don't have enough information. Let me take a quick crack and then I'm curious how Tracy will answer. My crack, my best crack at this answer is that- Pretend it's not even a mask. Just pretend it's any- No, no, right. Any of the, yeah, right, any intervention. Somebody pointed out that, um, you know, uh, when you run failed superiority trials, you fail to demonstrate superiority. You almost, you often have a wide conference interval. To tighten that interval, you're going to have to crank up the sample size tremendously. And then somebody said on the internet, like, peop, there are some people out there who will not let go of this particular hypothesis or any hypothesis until your conference interval is so tight, you prove net harm, okay, which is a very high threshold, right? And you have hundreds of thousands of people and you run it to net harm. You know, maybe we got there with hydroxychloroquine, actually. But, you know, for most things, we don't get to there. Um, what I want to say is, in the history of medicine, most of the things we do not do today that you teach the resident, like once upon a time, we used to give heart failure patients isoproterenol, or once upon a time, you know, we didn't give, you know, whatever. Once upon a time, we used to do autologous stem cell transplant for breast cancer, those things we used to do that we don't do anymore. Most of those things that have been debunked, discredited, have not been debunked to that threshold that you're talking about, that it's, you've proven with a very tight conference interval that it's like net decremental. So we don't use that as the burden to throw something out. The burden is, if you can't prove it works in some reasonable period of time, we're done with you, okay? We're done, especially if there could be harms. So that's my best answer, um, why even though that conference interval goes from 0.74 to 1.4 off the top of my head, you know, I still think it's pretty neutral or negative results. But I'm curious how Tracy will answer. Yeah, no, I mean, I was just going to get to the exact same point of the burden of proof that you, you, it's, it's up to the investigators and the people who are trying to say that this intervention 
works to show that it does. And even if, you know, there's like wide confidence intervals, I mean, they haven't shown that it worked. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, you need a better study to prove it. And I, I don't have too much more to add to that. I mean, there are so many examples. I was just thinking of in, in your book, actually, Vinay, Ending Medical Reversal, about PSA is another great example of that, right? Like, yeah. um, I don't know. There's there's so many examples. But it's interesting how, like, we, we you know, it's also children's, <laughs> children's vaccines, like the data that we, the, the, I would say, we, every time I think of wide confidence intervals, I think of the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the infant toddler vaccine data and, like, we, how we still... Don't have, we never got good randomized data on that, but for co- COVID-19. For COVID-19. Yeah, sorry, the COVID-19. For, for, for six like, months through yeah. four years old, that data is terrible. It yeah. was, yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of actually unreal. That, How terrible. <laughs> that it was, I mean, and I think that's why, you know, most countries never actually gave the infant toddler vaccine because the data was never there. So, and to be fair, most Americans didn't give it either to their infants. Yeah, and that's right. That's exactly right. It was recommended, but um, we didn't know. Right, right. And, and that, I just, you know, we got we got to close, but it yeah. just also gets to the to the thing we started talking about in the beginning with just trust and trust and authorities. And, you know, if if regular people can see that there's no data and um, or regular people can see that, you know, if you're if you're masking my three year old and when I go pick him up, he's, you know, hanging out uh, at nap time without his mask in the same room. I mean, regular, <laughs> re- regular people are just going to say, well, wait a second, if, if they're recommending this, what, what are they really thinking? And so I just, yeah, I, 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 I think one of the biggest problems with recommending things like that are just, you know, uh, uh, difficulties with trust. Yeah. And, and it's, 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 it's become like a moral thing too. Right. I mean, masks, it's like, it's become synonymous with caring. And I think that's why we just can't, can't shake it. It's like, you know, it's always, it's, it's just the sign that, that, that you care if you wear a mask. And I mean, I'm still, I don't know how things are, are there where you live, John, but here in California, it's like still just so many young people, wearing masks um you know and i can tell it's because they want people to think like i care about you and it's like i and i appreciate that that sentiment but it's also like well we don't have any evidence that it that it's working so you know whenever i point out that there's some young there's some young person wearing a mask and i'm like why the way i saw somebody wearing an n95 outside in the rain and the rain is pelleting it and somebody's like well you know you don't know that they didn't just have a transplant and they're about, you know, they just want to take it off between. And I was like, yeah, but you know, you don't know that all those people who took ivermectin didn't have helminth infections, but we can guess that that's probably not why they're taking that ivermectin, you know? So yeah, I mean, the reality is they're doing it because the youth is liberal and the liberal position is, you know, Donald didn't do it. So we got to do it 10 times as hard because it's good people do. And just one last point with the moralizing. I mean, I think Tracy's right. The moralizing is a problem. Um, you know, I, I have a post in my Substack where I said something like, I am personally not going to get any more boosters until you prove to me that, you know, a 40 year old guy in good health who already got three doses and already had COVID derives a benefit from that extra dose. I'm not going to do it. And Todd Lee, the, you know, professor in McGill university, he said the same and, you know, an MD PhD student said the same. There's a few of us who say the same. And I think it's a pretty reasonable position. I don't want to keep taking medical products in perpetuity, you know, and then somebody is trying to argue and they don't argue the facts. They don't actually say, you know, Vinay Prasad is wrong and 
He should do it without randomized evidence. Here's why. It's all just, you know, a smear campaign. One of your essays on your Substack was once reprinted by journal that caters to a conservative audience, which is true. Why did, why did I allow them to reprint my essay for, you know, no amount of money? Because what do I want? Fewer people to read my essay? I want more people to read my essay, of course. So anyone wants to reprint my essays, I'll say reprint my essay. What do I care? Um, you know, uh, Tracy once had coffee with um, Joe Ladapo, who's a Surgeon General of Florida, who once had, who met John Ron DeSantis. Yeah, okay. But he's a nice guy. He's a professor. He's an MD PhD from Harvard. Um, you know, they're friends. Doesn't mean anything about the merits of the argument. And this is, ad, this is fundamentally ad hominem. Now, why do people paint with the ad hominem brush? It's easier to paint with the ad hominem brush than actually sit down and try to think about the data. You know, it's a lot harder to sit down and think. Um, anyway, we're going over too long, but. Yeah, well, this has been a great conversation. Uh, it is over what we, what we planned, but it's so good that um, I think it's great. And Tracy, thank you so much for coming on and, and, and we're going to have you again. And it's, it's really great. And so uh, we'll see you next week, everybody.